Right now on Tech Radio, Big Tech parts with big money. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RTE Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're very welcome to episode 971 this week in association with NTT Data, who will be asking the question... Should you have an open relationship with your cloud partner at the next TechFire webinar, which is happening very shortly on the 31st of May? For more information on that, visit techfire.ie. Link in the show notes, as always. On the show today, we're going to be talking about how we can brush up on our language skills without the fear of looking like an idiot. Also, we have so much news to share from record fines to Microsoft's Build Conference to an embarrassing start for the next president of the United States of America. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Joining me as always is our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson. Let's start off with Microsoft Build. Uh, I watched it. I have to be honest, it's a little bit too much for me. I haven't coded in a long time and... Did you? Oh, okay. Well, uh, I I actually missed this uh, for the first time in a long time. Um, And, I mean, if you'd asked me what are they going to talk about at Build? I would have said ChatGPT, generative AI, and Copilot. That's if that's all they talked about. That's that's mission accomplished, as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah. what did they talk about? They talked about loads of other things, but that's what I'm saying. When I do, went way too geeky for me. Uh, and they were talking about uh, being able to build your own AI app specifically, and the getting in and coding, and how they're using AI for actually doing coding with all the various languages and stuff like that. So, but the two big things I think that really concern us uh, coming out of Microsoft Build is that ChatGPT now has live internet access because, as we know. Up until this point, ChatGPT has been trained on information right up to September 2021 and knew nothing after that. Now they yeah. are connecting it to the internet. Now, not for everybody, certainly not the free users, paid users. And uh, I think those who are tied in with Bing and stuff like that will have access to it uh, immediately. But the demonstration that they gave looked quite good, actually, I have to say. Uh, also, so the does, thing- does this mean ChatGPT is learning as it goes now? So there's no, there's no limit as to what it knows. It's just constantly cycling information. That's a very good question. Uh, ChatGPT has access to the internet to look up information, whether it's actually going to input that into its learning process. I kind of assume it would. But then, uh, uh, this was in the back of my mind, how do you trust your information source, especially when you're an AI and you don't have a brain? Well, yeah, and this is one of the problems with ChatGPT. Mm. is that you ask it something and it gives you a very confidently worded answer that could be complete bunk. Uh, just and quite, quite, quite often it is. Quite often it is. If you put in, uh, tell me about the elephant factory in Dublin, it'll come back with an answer because it needs to have an answer, even though there is no yeah. elephant factory in Dublin, that kind of stuff. Um, but do you yeah. know what I find Ch- ChatGPT is very good for? is for helping me with stuff. Well, I think one of the big things I see it being used for is summarise this YouTube video. Mm-hmm. And I love how it does that. And that it goes to the video. It creates a transcript. If there isn't one there already, usually there is. Uh, and it'll go through the transcript and it'll go, okay, these are the main points. Da, 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 da. And I've used that kind of stuff as, for ChatGPT quite a bit. But what I've found is that it's like asking a 10-year-old child to summarize something because it'll just miss out on really obvious stuff. 
you know what I mean? Again, mm. if you have a human brain, you'll kind of go, well, look, that wasn't really important, but you've completely skipped this bit that was really important. And that kind of It does a great yeah, summary. Yeah. And the way it presents it is fantastic. But mm, you, you have to double and triple check everything it does. No substitute for common sense. And the other thing that they are doing with ChatGPT and something similar to this, actually, it's another use I have for the system, is that they're going to build this whole co-pilot thing. You know, the way they're doing with Bing and your co-pilot, mm. your office co-pilot. They're going to build this AI co-pilot into Windows itself. And I'm thinking that's amazing because you should be able to just type in, you know, kind of, uh, I want to go dark mode on this application when I'm using it, you know, mm. or I would need to change the settings on my mouse to go from, you know, primary finger right to left or whatever happens to me. And it'll just go and do it instead of having to mm. dig in and look for. Um, the only thing that I worry about is that Microsoft have got a reputation of taking something really good and then ruining it. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder if they'll do this <laughs> with the uh, the AI po- co-pilot, you know? Like Cortana has been there for how long? Who uses it? Well, Cortana uh, Cortana is on borrowed time. Uh, what I think is interesting is how AI is finding a home under the hood, mm. if you will. We don't need, you know, uh, a little glowing ball like Siri, or we don't need you know, a a circle or, you know, as, as for anyone who's ever played Halo, the sort of the blue lady, we don't, we don't need that. Um, Just let AI work away in the background, make our lives easier, get rid of the novelty uh, Mm. and just leave it, leave it at that. We don't need these things to have personality, just help us do what we want to do. Yes and no, because I don't like the name Copilot. I think it's... Horribly bland. Whereas Alexa or Siri um, or even OK Google, do you know what I mean? I will agree with you. These things do have to have a, a kind of personality in order for people to want to engage with them. Uh, I, I agree with you there. I think that's something that's coming because like on your car, they used to have it on when you would have when you would buy Car mapping systems. I can't remember who made them, but do you remember you buy a, a, a map thing for your car and you put it in on the dashboard and stuff like that and there'd be a voice sure. that comes with it and then you could change the voice to one of a celebrity. So if you wanted, you know, kind of Morgan, what's his name, whatever, giving you directions, you could do that. Possibly the same thing could happen with AI and you might be able to set it up in such a way so that it affects your personality. It's like Bing are doing that now. They kind of go, do you want short practical answers? Do you want something really creative and a bit out there or do you want a bit in the middle? And I think mm-hmm. where we're going with AI could be fun because you could give it the personality type that you like and you could give it the name that you like. So instead of calling it Copilot, you could call it Mick. <laughs> How many are, are there any famous Copilots in history? I can't think, I love aviation and I can't think of a single famous co-pilot. There's been famous pilots, Lindenberg and, and uh, the, the first lady to fly the Atlantic, uh, people who have flown Concorde for the first time. Uh, the, the, yes, the, the, there was Mike, what's his name? He was the guy who flew the British Airways Concords and so he was quite famous as well. Can't think of a single famous co-pilot. <laughs> ah, do you know, do you know, Chekhov. Chekhov. Ah, he was, there you go. That's it. He was, 
he was beside Sulu on the on the Enterprise. It also, you know, there, there's Chekhov's rifle. So if you've got Chekhov's personal assistant, you have to use it, whether you want to or not. <laughs> Chekhov's PA. I love that. that uh, Chekhov. That's it. That's what that's what we want to call the new co-pilot for uh, uh, for Microsoft. Fantastic. Other news this week. Let's get into it. Uh, it's, it's Facebook. Oh, two big stories with Facebook, and one is absolutely horrible, dreadful, and I, I hate this. Four hundred and ninety jobs here in Ireland gone. Yeah, and this is another part of this so-called year of efficiency. Oh, um, efficiency! Sounds so benign. Do you, do you think the people who used to work for Facebook are calling it efficiency? Oh yeah, it was efficiency got no. me in the end. No, it's like the year of the black cloud. It's um, it is a terrible situation to be in. Yeah, a lot of these companies they they overhired during uh, COVID. Demand then sort of uh, tapered off a little bit. Mm. Um, and they were left with all these highly skilled people and not enough work. So uh, they've they've had to methodically let people go. I mean, the the total, the um, target is like 10,000 jobs to go across the company. Now, Facebook for scale, Facebook employs 25,000 people in Ireland. Um, so 490 going in this tranche. And 25,000. Yeah, 25,000. Get out. I thought it was like 3,000. You have me doubting myself now. Are you not asking your co-pilot? Hey, co-pilot, how many Facebook employees in Ireland? And the answer is... Oh, my goodness. My goodness. Dusty, you are so much closer than me. 3,000. We got to edit that. (laughs) (laughs) No, we are so leaving that in. And you can call (laughs) me Chekhov from now on. (laughs) Anyway. Back to uh, Chekhov. I'll tell you why I had uh, 3,000 was in my head and why I was thinking of it. It's because they let, uh, how many was it? It was uh, 300 people go, I think. Or 390, no, 300 people go, I think, earlier on in the year. 490 jobs going around this time. That's that's 800 jobs out of nearly 3,000 employees. That's almost 30% of their workforce. That's huge. That's a large chunk of the workforce. And, to, you know, kind of the, the year of efficiency. If I was one of those people, I, I would want to be violent. I would be fairly hacked off as well because, because this comes in the background of two things. Mm. Um, one is the uh, failed purchase of Giphy, which the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK finally, yep, confirmed, hammer down, can't can't have it, you got to sell it. Mm. Uh, Facebook bought it for something like 300 plus million. They've had to sell it to 50 for, to um, a stock images company. I think it was Shutterstock. Mm. Um, uh, made a massive loss on it. Yep. Like they, they are taking, they are doing, they can afford to blow 200 million on a failed deal, but they can't afford to keep on their own people. There we go. Do you know what? I want to see you and Doyle Aaron. TD Nile Kitson. <laughs> but I, I'm, you, you are so right. You are absolutely right. If they can blow 200 million on that, why are they letting those jobs? I just, I don't know. I don't know anybody is is working in Facebook or anything like that, but I just think it's it's dreadfully sad. Well, so anyway, Giphy, uh, Giphy uh, deal went through so that 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 went south, so that's gone. Yeah, uh, and then of course yeah. the other thing uh, is the GDPR fine, and we were talking about it last yeah. week on the show, and we said, oh, that's going to be a record. That's going to be you know kind of nearly a billion. How wrong were we? How wrong were one point two billion GDPR fine? And if memory serves, mm. this is much bigger than what the Office of the Data Protection Commissioner were initially seeking, that this went to Europe and they basically said, look, 
this is a, a particularly egregious example of a big tech company um, not appreciating what GDPR is meant to be about. Um, we need, you know, a line in the sand kind of fine. We need something mm. that's genuinely punitive, not something that Facebook is going to eat and move on. Um, because you you might remember we interviewed Max Schrems a couple of years ago mm. and, uh, you know, we said, you know, do, do you see big tech sort of abiding by GDPR? And he was like, look, for as long as features remain net profitable, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. Um, and this is a case now, finally, where, I mean, we're getting a lot of money off it, which is nice. But this is also a line in the sand case to the point that Facebook issued a statement saying, oh, well, you know, this really impacts the cost of doing business in Europe. Mm. Maybe we won't be able to provide Facebook in Europe kind of nonsense. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It just goes to show, I mean, we've, we've spoken about this at length over the years, the fundamental disconnect between the American attitude to data and the mm. European attitude to data. Whereas in, in America, they say, hey, you've signed up for this stuff. You're generating this stuff for free on our platform. It's ours. That's it. Uh, whereas in Europe, they say, okay, you're using a platform, but what you generate is your property. Mm. You're sharing your things. So, you know, it's it's yours. Take it out, delete it, yeah. whatever you want. I think that fine, uh, I, even though it's colossal and, and it really made me go, wow, uh, it's still a drop in the ocean. I think from what I remember, Google turned over over 100 billion anyway. They yeah, turn over yeah. over a hundred billion to take one percent out of that. It's like they could have gone four percent. Can you imagine if they said four? Well, four percent is the is the upper. Uh, you know, it's what twenty million or four percent of global turnover, whichever yeah. is is higher. Mm. That's the that you know that's the ceiling on GDPR. So you know, I mean, the previous largest fine was seven hundred forty six million, which was levied against Amazon yep. in Luxembourg. Yeah, and we've blown yeah. that out of the water. And Apple blows all of that stuff out of the world or further again because we've gone from 1.2 billion up to the Apple fine is 13.4 billion. What's the latest but on we that? Don't, we don't want that money. We don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> we never wanted this money. Yeah, um, okay. so, so I know. It's been a case of like kind of uh, Ireland and Apple said, no, this is not a double Irish tax avoidance kind of a thing, blah, blah, blah. And oh, the EU disagreed is. and then the EU agreed uh, and there's been a whole load of further appeals. There's a final, 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 final decision coming. What's the cliffhanger? Yeah, it's going to happen in November. <laughs> we've got We've got to wait a long time for a decision on this. But I mean... You know, the easiest way, uh, I read this explanation and I was like, Do you know what, that's that's kind of it, right? You, uh, because basically what happened was that Apple have their head office for Europe and Ireland, but in order to book their profits, they set up another uh, company uh, called Apple, uh, Apple Sales International or Apple Sales Europe. But basically the idea was that if you sold a product in Europe, for 100 euros, right? Uh, instead of going, okay, I have made, you know, the retailer takes maybe five euros off that, right? Uh, not in real life, but let's just say this is what it is. But like, I've got 95 euros, I've got to pay tax on that, right? What they were doing was going, okay, I've got 95 euros, but I'm not paying tax on that because I had to buy the rights to make this product from this company overseas. 
right? So all of a sudden I could say, okay, well, look, I've for the retailer, but look, I've had to, you know, spend 90 euro to get the rights to even sell this product over here, right? So they're so declaring it, their profit then as little or nothing. Yeah, it's called base erosion profit shifting. And it still goes on. And it's it basically, yeah, it just whittles away the amount of money that you could potentially pay tax on. That's what it's there for. And these, these you know, it's a very aggressive form of tax planning. Um, mm. Do you know what? Uh, if Ireland had been open and said to everybody, this is something you can do, um, probably have gotten away with it. The problem is with this case, I mean, awful as it looks to the rest of the EU and awful as it is from a PR perspective for Ireland, apparently the information about Apple's practices were not shared with other companies in Ireland. And this is where the argument that it was illegal state aid comes from, because by virtue of knowing what Apple was doing without telling anyone, all of a sudden you've got something that amounts to a state secret. Therein lies the problem. So not the fact that Apple were using this base erosion tool, which is, you know, distasteful, but legal. Um, it was the fact that the government was not sharing this information freely. I have not heard anybody explain that uh, as well as you have. And my jaw now is kind of on the ground and, and, and I get it. Um, November, you say, is when, when we get the, the final decision on that. Yeah. That, that kind of leads on because it's the, the wording and everything, I think, is very interesting when you come to these things because TikTok now is another case mm. in America, in the state of Montana, where they have been told, right, that's it. Boom, you're gone. Uh, nobody is allowed yeah. to supply your app on app stores. Nobody's allowed to use your app or to whatever, the, the whole thing. Now, there are TikTok users in Montana who are taking the state to court saying you can't do this. And of course, TikTok themselves are taking a case to court saying that you cannot do this. I think one of the things that they mm -hmm. have added into their case is really interesting. OK, basically what TikTok are saying in court in Montana is that rather than regulate social media companies in general, this ban banishes just TikTok from the state for purely punitive reasons. Yeah, I think that's really it because, yes, but it sounds very similar to like the Apple deal. You know, kind of it's there and it's, yeah, well, it's available to everybody, but it only applies to Apple. And TikTok is kind of like, well, it should really probably apply to all social media companies, but it only applies to TikTok. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Just an yep. interesting little world that we are living in at the uh, at the moment. Uh, a couple of other little bits and pieces of news. Ah, Ron DeSantis, the Ron governor DeSantis. in Florida, has decided to go up against Donald Trump for the Republican nomination as the next president of the United States of America, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and he decided to uh, make a, a big announcement and no better place than on a huge social media platform like Twitter. So the whole mm -hmm. idea was Elon Musk himself would be there. Ron DeSantis will be there. Everybody will be on Twitter. He'd go, I'm running for the next president of the United States of America. And everybody would go, way. however you do that on Twitter. Um, but the problem mm -hmm. was, and we've said this before months ago, Twitter kept breaking down too many people. 
too many people and and who you know um this is hilarious because if you bear in mind that Ron DeSantis is trailing Donald Trump badly in the polls I mean, there's there's like a 30 to 40 point difference depending on who you ask, right? DeSantis is a younger Trump. However, he is trying to be a younger Trump in a state where an awful lot of, you know, ostensibly older people. um, Yeah, but essentially the base that he wants to tap into are the people that are going to vote for Trump no matter what. So... He's basically going, you know, I sound like Trump. I have all the, you know, there's actually a video, a video going around showing his hand movements. So, you know, he's even sort of picking up on the mannerisms. You know, his whole thing is implicitly, you know, I will give you all of that and I'm not going to die in office. <laughs> you can get me for eight years if you want. I think that's what a lot of people are saying about uh, uh, Biden, that he could die in office mm, if, because well, he's so old. But anyway. So but, the f- and, and the funny thing is, hmm. right, um, DeSantis relied on Twitter with its built-in install base and its free speech absolutist, which means say anything unless it annoys me, mm-hmm. um, CEO um, and owner Elon Musk. Uh, who is taking no side whatsoever uh, in the Republican primary, despite taking time to interview Ron DeSantis himself, uh, as opposed to standing back and going, okay, I'm nominating some guy from Fox News, come in and do it, Mm. speak to your own people. Um, And uh, it was a disaster. All sorts of technical problems. Also, um, and we, we had said this before when um, Elon was letting so many people go from Twitter and we said, we won't see the problem today. We'll see it down the line that something will happen, that they won't have the people to fix things quickly enough technically and it'll be a disaster. And I think this week we saw it when Ron DeSantis uh, announced his nomination on Twitter and everything just yeah. came to a calamitous end. You saw the start of it. It's not going to get any better, especially when you consider that Trump has his own social network in its entirety. Yeah, he's the only one on it, though. That's the only thing. (laughs) (laughs) Also, speaking of things not working, poor old uh, Richard Branson, poor and Richard Branson, not not, uh, (laughs) two words you hear in the same sentence often. Uh, Virgin Orbit, his idea of taking a a 747 and attaching uh, a rocket onto it and then firing that rocket from 40,000 feet off into space. I thought it was brilliant. Really takes down the cost of of getting satellites into space and so on. It's Mm. all come to an end. It's officially over and and here's over here's this is this is where i hate negative journalism right because the story uh that i saw went only four of its six flights were successful now four out of six to me is like 66 percent. and if i got 66 percent in any topic in my leaving cert i would have been over the moon if you get a 66 percent in college that's a two one most people would be delighted with that. There you go. So 66% and it's a failure. Isn't it a tough world, isn't it? Anyway, they've had to sell off bits of the bits of the company, the company left, right and centre. The company called Strata Launch uh, bought the actual 747 plane uh, launcher who are a company who are hoping to do the first private space station bought the launch site uh, which is in Nevada I think it is and a company called Rocket Lab bought the offices in in LA and stuff like that so it's all over for Virgin Orbit and then finally uh, this week uh, here's one that you saw actually I should have kept this in with Twitter uh, a picture that was going around Twitter caused a bit of a, a rumpus during the week what was it of? 
Yeah, it was an AI picture of an explosion at the Pentagon. Um, very quickly debunked, but posted mm. to Twitter. And of course, there was the, as expected, firestorm of, oh my God. Um, and it even affected the markets. The uh, stock market went down in New York for a brief period until you know, it was out of that, actually, this, this is an AI-generated image. Actually, interesting kind of side point. Um, for anyone that hasn't seen it yet, American Manhunt on Netflix about the Boston bombing. Um, there was a movie made about it called Patriot's Day uh, with Mark Wahlberg and Kevin Bacon. It's very watchable. Uh, it's a very good movie. And um, this is sort of, it's a three-part documentary, so it's not going to take up too much of your life. Um, three hours in total. And it just goes through everything, you know, to, and there's a wonderful uh, excerpt or, or section about how the cyber division worked and how they asked everybody to just send us your pictures, send us everything, send us as much footage as you have. We will put together a picture. We will try and see if we can see someone. And that's how they identified the bombers. But wow. Some of the pictures that were sent in were actually photoshopped. So you had things like, you know, there was one example they give of a bag left by one of the uh, railings unattended. And immediately you're thinking, oh my God, another device, a device that didn't go off, you know, or was that one of the devices, you know, is, is this where we should be focusing our, our interest, you know? Um, so things like this do happen. Um, it was a very you know, nasty aspect of the investigation to have to deal with people mm. uh, or deal with an image that was uh, doctored. And it makes one wonder, God forbid there be another, you know, large scale or high impact as they, as they call it, terrorist incident. And the investigation be hampered by AI images. And this is why it's so important to have these things, you know, watermarked or clearly identifiable or anything like this that yep. you can just filter them away. Yep. And that's why I think we have, you know, some very high people in uh, computer and technology at the moment who say that they have concerns about AI. But I mean, that's that's a topic for another day. Listen, let's leave mm. the news for there. Niall Kitson, as always, thank you very much. This is Tech Radio from techcentral.ie. Get every episode of Tech Radio by clicking follow on your podcast player right now. Half the challenge of learning a language is getting not only the vocabulary right, but the accent as well. You can practice the first bit at home pretty well, but how can you get feedback about the accent? Stephen Kelly is the creator of Nualang, and he spoke with Niall Kitson about how his solution can make you feel less like a stranger in a strange land. Stephen, I think one of the common experiences we've all had in school when it comes to learning a language and, and particularly learning it in a group and having to stand up and actually speak in front and with people isn't so much the element of vocabulary, which you can you know manage well enough if you can memorize things fairly well, but it's elements like accent and tone of voice that can really trip people up and it really undermines people's confidence uh, when it comes to learning a new language. Is this something you found in your own development of Nualang? Yes, it is. And it's, it really is one of the, the, the most challenging parts of learning a new language is can you have the confidence to go out and use it? Um, it's, it's definitely was played a part in the inspiration for Nualang was my own personal experiences 
of trying to uh, learn Spanish for the Leaving Cert. You know, the listening and speaking exams are worth such a huge chunk of the exam. And without someone to practice conversations with and correct my mistakes, I really felt nervous going into those exams. And, and I felt like that feeling was common amongst my classmates. So I really would have loved to have an app that allowed me to practice conversations and give me that immediate feedback on my pronunciation to give me that confidence so that when I said across from the examiner that I was confident that what I was saying was correct. And there's applications then as well. If you wanted to go out and travel, you know, you really want to make sure that all the hard work that you spend learning a new language, that you have enough confidence built up that you go out and, and take advantage of that and use it out in the real world too. I think there's that idea of, you know, knowing enough of a language to get by uh, in inverted commas, which which used to be a thing. That's, um, I suppose, the more familiar you get with a language, the less uh, realistic that becomes, that it does become so much more about your willingness, not just to, you know, use vocabulary, but to engage in sort of cultural norms and, and that sort of thing as well. Um, using an app is a very natural way for people these days to engage with content. So how did you found, how did you find that experience of engaging with a language as opposed to specific pieces of content? As you said, an app is an, a natural way for people. Everyone is 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 usually has a smart device that they can be using to 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 pick up and and, and to start practicing. We see that for for teachers in a classroom, and um, there is limited time to sit and practice with students. So the students can take uh, their devices home and be able to practice uh, in their own time. Or if it is uh, a situation where teachers can provide sort of smart devices in the classroom, it can be brought in as part of, of the classroom experience. But it is all about engaging with the language. Um, we, it's, a co- it's a common enough um, thing for people to hear that, you know, when you move or you live in a country where it's a new language and you immerse yourself in it, that is the best way to learn. And it's about trying to increase as much exposure with the language as possible. So that's what Neuralang tries to provide and a way to continue to engage beyond the classroom and, and provide the teachers a way to be there and, and to support their students, even if they can't sit down one-on-one and because time doesn't permit it. I think that's an important uh, point there to raise about the role of teachers because Neuralang is a platform. It's not necessarily a content provider. So what kind of relationship have you managed to foster with educators and what kind of content are they feeding back into the platform? Yes. So, so Neuralang, as you said, is, is more of a platform for content creators to build their own materials. And that's important because there, there is a, uh, an importance to personalize the material so that it matches with location or the particular students and be able to build something that is a suitable level. And what we see is with Neuralang is that teachers do enjoy that aspect of it. But one concern is always that is there enough time in the day? Teachers are already very busy. So there's a community of content there already for teachers to try out with their students so they don't have to build everything themselves. And that community aspect of it is, is something that teachers really enjoy, be able to, being able to create and share with, with other 
like-minded teachers. And we started to work with publishers. So we've that's only going to add more content on Newlang for teachers to be able to take advantage of and also be able to align it with their existing textbooks. So um, they could be able to get started really, really quickly. I suppose uh, one problem, well, challenge, I suppose, that presents itself is dealing with different curricula. Uh, in particular, you know, the way they teach languages in America might be slightly different to the way we teach them over here uh, or on the continent. What kind of, uh, I don't want to say problems or challenges or conversations are you finding when it comes to tailoring the platform to deal with different markets? Or do you find there is even an appetite in different markets for this style of learning? Yep. So we, we definitely see that there's an importance to localize the content so, and that is one of the advantages of Neuralang because you can build your own courses that it means that courses can be built so that it's perfect for a particular area. And what's really handy is that you can actually pull content from a, content, a teacher in the States could pull content by a teacher in Ireland and tweak it slightly so it's perfect for their students. And without having to create it all from scratch, so you can you can pick and choose and edit and personalize all of the existing content on Newlang, so that it, it's just right for what you'd like it to do and what you'd like it to achieve. So it is an important aspect of language learning, and there's the aspect of personalizing for students, but as you said, there's also the curriculum. So there's specific goals that the teacher has in mind for the, for the students. So whether it's they're trying to achieve a certain proficiency level in and, when, and that could be ACTFL if you're in the States or it could be CEFOR if you're in Europe or they're looking to try to, to get the students to be as confident and uh, do as well on the exam as possible. So there's just every, all, all teachers will have different um, motivations and, and goals for their students and Newlang is flexible enough to be able to provide openness to be able to to cater for all those scenarios. I suppose ultimately the the real kind of feedback that you're looking for is those people uh, who have used Newalang that have gone out into the world and come back and said, you know what, this this indeed was really useful for me. Um, you've got that line with educators at the moment. How long do you think you'll be able to get the kind of feedback you need from actual users so you can start tweaking the app? perhaps more in, in their direction as well? I, I think feedback is hugely important. And ourselves, we, we wouldn't consider ourselves the language experts. We would consider our teachers and our publishers the language experts. We, we focus on making sure the platform and the technology is as strong and, and supports the, them as much as possible. We're learning and we, 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 we would over the years have picked up a lot about or learned a lot about language learning and education in general. But we, we, because we aren't the experts in the field, we really heavily rely on feedback and, and, and listening to the, to the teachers that are using Neuralang as much as possible. So the first few years of development, that was key to, to, to understand the problems that the teacher's facing in the classroom and be able to build something that save some time, addresses the, the needs of their students. And we would like to continue that as much as possible as we grow 
to, to, to keep that relationship with teachers that they continue to let us know about the challenges they're facing because year on year challenges have changed, you know, different curriculum changes come up and the world changes around us. So we, we'd love to continue that, to have that uh, feedback loop with, with, with teachers and also the students. So we want to hear that the students are enjoying the platform as well. And that was Stephen Kelly, the creator of Newalang, chatting with Niall Kitson. You can check out their website, which I've noted in the show notes for you. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. There are more stories online that we didn't have time to include in the podcast this week, including a report on last night's Tech Excellent Awards, which was rather fantastic, I believe. The return of the Dublin Smartphone Festival is here and Dell has a new partnership with NVIDIA so they can keep up with developments in generative AI. you find all of that on our website at techcentral.ie. Once again, our show this week was supported by NTT Data, who will be asking the burning question, do you have an open relationship with your cloud partner at the next Tech Fire webinar, which is happening on the 31st of May? You can register for that at techfire.ie. On the podcast, we're back again next Friday on RT Radio 1 Extra. And of course, you can get episodes automatically by simply clicking follow on your podcast player right now. Until then, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, thanks for listening. Take care. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.